0: Thanks for listening. For earlier access to these episodes, access to Ask Me Anything sessions, and extended breakdowns of historical and current events, please consider joining our Warning Premium community by clicking the link in the description to this episode. Good evening, and thank you for joining this Warning event. I'm thrilled to be joined by Joyce Vance, Uh, Before we get going this evening, I just kindly ask all of you to mute uh, yourselves and your computers. We will be able to hear it, and it makes it impossible for us to have a conversation and for other people to be able to listen. Joyce and I are going to talk for a while. In about 40 minutes, Lisa Kimmel will join us and moderate questions for both Joyce and myself. Um, If you would be good enough to put them into the chat, we'll try to get to as many of them as we can, and we'll bang them out on email responses after the fact. But um, let me just begin by welcoming um, Joyce and somebody who is a uh, frequent presence on American television, somebody who has a real talent for explanation and clarifying A lot of the complexity that we are dealing with as a country so i i couldn't be more thrilled to have her with us today uh joyce uh welcome
1: you know thank you so much for having me steve this was a great idea i love the notion of doing this together what i did not realize when we settled on this date was that it was both the one-year anniversary of my substack civil discourse today And of course, I don't think any of us realized we would be on possibly the eve of the first federal indictments of the former president. So what a night to be together.
0: Well, first off, congratulations on that. You have built a enormous Substack following, Uh, have had a lot of success like that over over the course of the year. I'm coming up on my one year anniversary with it as well. It's been a really interesting experience, a very different type of platform, one that I've enjoyed you know, very, very much. And you know, one of the things you say to everyone on, I, I really recommend, um, if you want a better understanding of the legal issues, what's happening, I can't recommend Joyce's Substack more, more highly. It's one of the first five things I read in the mornings, enjoy it very much. And uh you'll get a good uh Set of pictures of Joyce's life at the farm also.
1: <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, I love your Substack, too. I, I didn't understand what Substack was when I first started hearing about people using it. I'm so glad that I took the plunge. I started actually reading my friend E. Jean Carroll's Substack. It was the first one I read. It's hilarious. But now it is my go-to for political commentary like yours, um, I, which I think is really my favorite thing about Substack. But, you know, I do read some of the life on the, the farm stuff. For those of you who don't know, we um, have chickens in our backyard, which has been an experience.
0: Um, as you pointed out, we are heading into unprecedented days. Um, I'm going to put the Manhattan prosecution aside. I don't mean to diminish it, dismiss it. But I think there are elements of politics in that that stand apart from the federal Prosecutions that I think are upon us. How do how should how should people watching think about this as a matter of history? How unprecedented is it? Um, as you as you contemplate what what seems to be on us, this this prosecution of a former president of the United States for the first time in American history.
1: I think it's hard to process things fully in the moment where you're living through them. Right. That's why we have historians. Um, And we are going to have this challenge of watching this happen. I increasingly believe it's not a question of if Donald Trump will be investigated by the feds. It's a question of when. And so I would suggest that this is a good paradigm. It's not the only one, but it's a good one. As citizens, we are entitled to demand this from our Justice Department, that they uphold all of their principles, all of their rules treat Donald Trump as a defendant just the way they would any other defendant. It is a test of our American rule of law to see whether he can be prosecuted in conformity with the same practices, given the same rights, treated with the same level of fairness as any other defendant. And here's the real challenge. Donald Trump would not do that for you or for me if we were on trial. Donald Trump has nothing but scorn for the rule of law. Donald Trump doesn't believe in American norms or practices, so it is a test for our system to see if we can treat him, give him the best tradition of American justice, even though he doesn't deserve it, because in a way, that's the test of the system as much as the verdict that a jury will ultimately render here.
0: I think we just said is a really important point, and it, it, it imposes a special obligation on Trump's most vociferous critics of which I count myself as one that we have to work overtime to talk about the fact now that Donald Trump like any american is entitled to the full constitutional rights all of the due process of any other american and and Donald Trump is in fact uh, innocent um, until proven proven guilty like any any other american as we as we enter into this process
1: That's really important because, you know, I was one of a group of people that looked at the evidence exhaustively, the publicly known evidence, and reached the conclusion that there were six statutes that Donald Trump could be charged with violating. Sort of two buckets. One bucket involved mishandling classified or or government secrets, and then the other bucket was obstruction of justice. I think he can be indicted. I think he can be convicted. But what you say is the bottom line for me. Like any other person who's indicted in the American justice system, he is innocent until proven guilty by a jury of his peers, no matter what I might think about the quality of the evidence.
0: Now, putting aside the indictment for a second um, in the specifics of what we think may or may not be in it, Chris Christie at New Hampshire Town Hall last night talked about something that I've written about over the course of the last year that I that I find to be as stunning an act of public corruption in broad daylight as anything that I have seen in my lifetime, and that is the investment by the sovereign investment fund of the government of Saudi Arabia, controlled by Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, over the objections of the professional money managers in the kingdom to invest $2 billion with Jared Kushner, who never has invested any money, has no experience running an investment firm, but despite having been denied a security clearance earlier in the administration, had an an unwavering appetite for classified information according to the Wall Street Journal, according to the New York Times, meaning he was one of the highest end consumers of it. Wanted the classified briefings. We have who knows what in Mar-a-Lago. You look now with the Saudi purchase of the PGA tour in the news. Chris Christie directly engaging on this issue, which I have always felt was not a lobbying story, but really an espionage story. And and let me just let me just add one one aspect to that. Robert Hansen died this week at the Supermax prison in in Colorado at age at age 79. Uh, Robert Hansen took about a million dollars from the from the Soviet Union. and again, I'll say that number with Kushner two billion with a B in in American money. And all of these issues, I, I think that outside of the outside of the prosecutorial context, there is a confluence between the legal side of this now, and the political side of this, um, with a with a Saudi connection, the 9-11 families involved in it as well, that I think makes for an explosive mix. Do you have any thoughts on the totality of all of these things coming together, politics and legally in this moment?
1: Yeah, you know, um, the Kushner deal certainly does not look kosher to me. Um, and before you even Think about espionage. There's just the notion that a senior advisor in the White House who worked extensively with the Saudis, right, who notoriously had friendships in Saudi Arabia, that he was given this gift um, on his way out the door. It does not look like a smart business decision by the Saudis. It looks like, you'll forgive me, graft. You know, but what do I know? Um, The point here is that when something like that takes place and when there's predication to investigate, then the FBI should be taking a look. And perhaps they have and they've cleared the situation. Perhaps they're still investigating. We don't really see any suggestion that they are. And I think this is the sort of thing it should have never happened. I mean, neither one of us, I don't think, has been a White House ethicist. But I think if we had been one of the ethics folks, we would look at the way that the Kushners leveraged their time in the White House and have real discomfort and know that in any other administration, they would have been shut down. Frankly, Jared Kushner's failure, as you point out, to be able to obtain a security clearance, something that should have disqualified him from further work. But we know he was was reading the briefing that the president receives every day. I mean, there's just so much dysfunction. So I think Chris Christie is right to raise this in the political arena, because it does not look like the situation will be redressed in the legal one. I mean, there could be a grand jury investigation ongoing. We just don't know. This is not something that can continue. We can't change what happened in the Trump administration. We've got to make sure that there is never a repetition. That's $2 billion. You don't get that amount of money just for nothing.
0: Does that trigger an investigation when it becomes public? Does does somebody in the Justice Department, whether they pick that up in the news, newspaper, cable news, reads about that and says, wow, the president's son-in-law, who had access to the president's daily brief, months after leaving his West Wing office, is taking $2 billion from the Saudis, we have to look into this, or...
1: I was going to say, in my experience, the best public corruption prosecutions always came out of newspaper stories, right? You'd be sitting at your desk, reading the newspaper, and you'd go, holy moly, did anybody know this was going on? And prosecutors in my office would talk about it, and you'd pick up the phone and call the FBI. And that's often how those investigations are triggered. So yes, it's legitimate for the Bureau, and I think the Bureau frequently does use the newspapers. Um, as one of many sources of intelligence, they all obviously have human sourcing and other ways of getting information. Here's the standard for opening a criminal investigation. though. There has to be predication. There has to be a reasonable belief more than a mere speculation that a crime has been committed. So somebody here would have to look at the different pieces, think if there's a statute that this might've violated, and then it would be legitimate, if not incumbent upon you to look into it. When,
0: when you. When you talk to your former colleagues in a community of law enforcement, former prosecutors, through a prism of water temperature, meaning think about a hot tub, it's 102 degrees, it's 99. You can tell the difference between the temperature. Is there a sense that this era has become more corrupt than 10 years ago? Fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, is there a sense that we're living in a golden age of corruption by the prosecutors, by the federal prosecutors that that are supposed to be to be looking at these things? Is there a is there a cognition of that as a matter of the fundamental realities of the politics of the moment, or do, or do you think that that's not, not sensed?
1: You know, if you could sort of slice the top layer of the cake and take Trump and his his folks and lift that layer off and set it aside, I think the rest of the cake is like it always is. I mean, there is always a smattering of public corruption that runs through American society that prosecutors have to address. That's why there's an entire public integrity section in the Justice Department that focuses on those cases. I don't think at least I don't get a sense from talking with folks who do the work that it's significantly increased with this one exception. I think Trump's behavior has emboldened other people to ignore laws and ignore norms. And if that is not shut down definitively, you know, we will end up living in sort of a, I don't know if it's a kleptocracy or a kakistocracy, khakis but where government officials increasingly believe that they can get away um with bad behavior. That's one of the reasons that you're seeing prosecutors focus on these cases and jump on these investigations. A great example is what happened in the Western District of Virginia last week where a series of family-owned companies, 13 coal mining related companies owned by West Virginia's Republican Governor Jim Justice were um sued in a civil action by the Justice Department they're trying to get back about 7 million dollars in fines that haven't been paid. The reason the lawsuit's happening in Virginia has to do with where the governor's son lives, but he's really a primary focus and his spokespeople kicked back and they said, this is a political witch hunt. It's sort of like they're gonna pick up the Trump defense. It's a pretty clear case of failure to pay money, um, primarily that they have to pay for fines due to failure to reclaim old old mining lands. Um, and that's the sort of stuff that you see. And that's the sort of stuff that prosecutors address. Right now, they have to address it with alacrity because of the situation Trump has created. But that slice of the cake that we pulled off and set aside, the that, that Trump slice, that stuff is just sheer crazy. And the, the sort of brazen way that they were willing to grift at the expense of the American taxpayers, unlike anything I have ever seen. And no
0: one has has been charged with anything.
1: So much of it, it was so pervasive, just stuff like, you know, and not always criminal, some of it administrative, but Steve, you, like me, had to stay within government per diem when you got a hotel room, right? I mean, you just stayed where the per diem worked. And now we know that Trump was requiring people in the Secret Service to stay at Trump-owned properties where he had jacked up the daily rates and he was billing the Secret Service. I mean, this stuff is just crazy talk. And that's minor, right? That's just one minor little cog in the hole of it, all of the ways that they made money off of the presidency.
0: Well, and, and this has been repetitive through Trump's career, right? You can you can look at this through some prism, I guess, right? And say he is a he's a he is a legal philosopher of our era in some level, right? Because he's advanced the proposition. I'm gonna do whatever I want. F you. And and he's tested that proposition um to the max. And he is you know, the outcome of it is, is, is very much uncertain. Um, But, but he, he has absolutely tested that, that proposition. And at age 78, you know, he's, he's taken it a quite, quite a few miles down the road.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's true. And, and I guess it's a conundrum if you're the Merrick Garland justice department. Do you try to go after everything? Do you let Trump and Trump-related cases consume all of your resources? Does that further politicize the country? But some of these offenses were serious, especially some of the stuff with cabinet-level officials who were involved in misconduct involving finances. It would be nice to see some of that addressed. It would be nice to see the Hatch Act restored so that private citizens would have confidence that the government is not using their money to achieve its own political aims. But a lot of those norms are are still out of kink. They're not back set to where they need to be for us to move forward. And, and do
0: you think that requires legislation?
1: I, you know, I think it requires a, a lot of things. I mean, these are soft norms. They're not necessarily laws. So I guess the question you're asking is, do we need laws instead of soft norms? And I think in some cases, yes, and in some cases, no we need to have a well-educated American citizenry that pays attention to who they're putting into office, sort of good luck with that, right? I mean, I think much more of the electorate is educated and engaged, and maybe that's the silver lining of the Trump era, because I promise you that in the 25 years I was a prosecutor, nobody ever asked me how a grand jury worked or what the difference between an indictment and an information was. And now I go to the grocery store, and somebody will pull me aside and say, can you explain what an information is to me? I think that's good for democracy when all of us are sharing the little pieces that we know about. I think that's fabulous. Are you worried about
0: our democracy?
1: Um, I teach in the area of democratic institutions. I spend a lot of time thinking about what the temperature in the institutions is, um, I do worry, but I also have this, you know, reflection. A year ago, we didn't know that anything in our system would ever be able to hold Trump accountable. There was a real chance that he was going to walk away unscathed. Since then, the January 6th committee has done just a remarkable job of educating the public, surfacing new information. And now the Justice Department is beginning to hold more and more people accountable That gives me confidence. We may be a fragile system, but that does not mean that we can't survive and grow stronger.
0: How do you feel or think about... Can I
1: push back and ask you that same last question, though? What do you think? How do you feel about the future of democracy these days?
0: I'm extremely concerned.
1: Why? Gravely,
0: gravely, gravely gravely worried. Well, I, I think that If you were to, for example, go and listen to John Kennedy speak at Amherst College, which was his last major address as president, it's a speech about the role of art in society. He's honoring Robert Frost. And so this is October of 1963. you, You listen to that speech, and it would be fair... To judge it against the idiocracy that we seem to live in today. It's as if a comet hit and wiped out about eighty five percent of mankind's knowledge. And there is a degeneracy in the society, like it's unraveling, right? The lack of ability to follow concepts. I was having a conversation with someone earlier today who was a Catholic priest, and talk about the concept of the public good um, as a philosophical construct, and and the difficulty of even expressing this as a concept, right, to, to Americans in this moment in time. So, what, what the Founding Father said in the, in the Federalist Papers, which is really a guide to understand if no one cares, if, if no one is engaged, if the society is consumed by lassitude, um, this all goes down. And so when you look at a John Kennedy 50 years ago, materially, substantively, in, in every conceivable way, there was a death, there was an elegance there was a seriousness of purpose that has been stripped from much of our politics and and the epicenter of it right is is inside the republican party which has become so deeply and profoundly corrupted and, and i say this all the time if you have a country with 18 political parties And one of the major parties in the 18 all of a sudden takes a flyer on pluralism, democracy, human rights, all of these things, and becomes an autocratic party. That's not a societal crisis. If you have a two-party system and one of the two political parties, which also happens to be the third oldest political party in the world, does that— and we have an inability, really, to honestly talk about it, look at it, speak about it. And there's an absence of coverage around, to me, what is the fundamental issue, right, of this of this moment in history, which is the rise of an American fascism. That's exactly what it is. It's an extremist political movement. Uh, one thing that I will agree with Benito Mussolini on completely is this. Mussolini invented fascism, and Mussolini gave a speech about fascism where he basically said, I, Mussolini, invented this. It's mine. I'm going to tell you what a fascist is and who gets to be a fascist and who isn't. And if you apply the Mussolini standard from the thing that he invented and talked about in the speech he gave, Marjorie Taylor Greene and a lot of these people and certainly Donald Trump, and certainly Ron DeSantis all passed the test. And, and so the issue is one of intent That that, shockingly to me, over the last seven years, that very few journalists have gotten to, but I think I know the answer. And you hinted at it at the beginning. Would Donald Trump lock up his political opponents? Would he imprison me? Did he send people to re-education camps? I think that there's a lack of appreciation for how quick a democracy can fall and people can be put up against the wall as a historical matter um, in the 1930s and the 1940s. And if you look at the fact 79 years yesterday on from D-Day, the most momentous events in human history, Still within the span of a single human lifetime are fundamentally forgotten in much of the society, which would have astonished my grandparents' generation. Um would have astonished most Americans even 20, 25, 20, 25 years ago. So so I think a society that can't remember, that that can't practice gratitude and that has lost sight of the compact generationally that we're going to leave the country better off, I think we're in a lot of trouble. And I think the the trouble is constantly undersold, underestimated. CNN is is a great example of this, right? With this notion of centrism as being some middle point that you have to frame as the contours of a discussion, between two sides but if you have one side that's completely delusional and fantastical and making up um he actually won the election that he lost or any of a number of other things and it's constantly propaganda all the time there is no middle point to me there is no place to compromise with the neo-nazi with the mm-hmm. patriot front with the proud voice who are now all certainly clearly in the open part of the political coalition of one of the two major political parties in the country. And I think that regresses the country on issues of civil rights, on human rights, on gay rights in a profound way. And what I really believe is we're in the middle of a backlash, of, of, of profound dimensions. But maybe the backlash is broader than the backlash to the Obama presidency and to gay marriage. Maybe it's a backlash against really a constant moving of the arc of moral justice, as Martin Luther King called it, really from 1947 through about 2016. And, and now there is the backlash to this. We are living through the backlash to the civil rights movement, gay rights movement, the Obama presidency. And we we have seen the rise of this extremist movement that has actually taken power once. And if it can take power once, it can take power again. And if this MAGA movement gets in there and takes power again, we will lose democracy as we understand it um, in the country. The good news is, is there is a genius to our system, and that is how decentralized it is uh, and how disaggregated power is to communities, to boroughs, to townships, to counties. So very hard, right, for there to be the imposition of a totalitarianism in democracy. But could we lose our democracy in the way that Hungary has, in the way that Turkey has? 100%. I mean, you can
1: can lose it in pieces, right? When, for instance, you know, wherever you are on the issue of, of abortion, when Roe versus Wade is rolled back, then women have lost a little bit of their stake as people who get to make decisions about important issues for themselves. And so I I think in some ways your vision is dark, but the fact that it's dark doesn't mean that it's wrong. I tend to strongly agree with you on the issue of growing fascism in this country. And one of the questions that I struggle with, and we may be in different places on this is, have we hit rock bottom or not, right? That's what I hear you saying we may not have hit rock bottom there may be far worse coming and again worse coming and against that i have this sort of slender thread it's it's slender and and my thread is but the rule of law may hold trump accountable and that may be the start of our climb back up that's the aspirational hope that american democracy stands on that if we start with trump we can work on some of the other things because we do have Ron DeSantis in the wing, who has a fundamentally fascist ideology that he brings to the American people. And if you, you know, look at the polls in the Republican Party, DeSantis and Trump combined have about 75% of the support of a party that, you know, I, I grew up in this tradition. My my substack is called civil discourse, and it wasn't a random pick. I mean, I grew up loving the notion of debating politics with my friends. And a lot of my friends were very conservative Republicans. And we went back and forth on the issues in this great spirit of friendliness because we all had one common goal. Our common goal was having a strong, self-sufficient America where we could all live our lives happily. And this is the concern that I have. There's no longer that sort of overarching, consistent agreement among people in this country. The Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world do not want to have a country where people like me can thrive. But, you know, I have always wanted to see an America where everybody got to fulfill their own promise. And I wonder if it's not that fundamental premise that's broken and that brings us where we are today. You are very apt, I think, at pointing out that it's more than just a backlash to the fact that we had a Black man in the White House. It it is in many ways a a backlash to the entire civil rights movement starting with Martin Luther King starting with rights for black people and that that mo- that movement has expanded dramatically right to include brown people and asian people and other immigrants and lgbtq people and and women and it's now this notion that we should be a fully participatory society and that is very threatening to some people
0: when you when you talk about and we'll bring lisa in here and asking questions um in in just a second when you talk about the rule of law about it being the final backstop i the the image that comes to my head i think of an aircraft carrier and i think of that last cape right the emergency cable right if the plane misses it right you know the first yeah. so this is the job of an informed citizenry to deal with all of these issues politically which the country has not done and I, I un, undeniably um, you you cannot look at the Biden presidency and 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 score them highly, in my view, on this issue of dealing with the extremist element in the country on no other, evidence needed other than its persistence it has not been put away the argument has not been made the american people have not been convinced the the opposition party um which is the pro democracy party right has has not been able to crush right the autocratic argument right on the seven years right that it has metastasized and grown in the in the country. I just think that's undeniably so. It is one election. Well,
1: you know what would you have this administration do that it has not done because I think this is such an important question. You know, we saw the military after the insurrection after January 6th. They did a stand down where in in every command, right, the leaders talked to the troops and they they were very concerned about this notion that there might be folks Um, who held white supremacist views in the military. Um, That was a substantial step. We have not done that throughout the country, right? I mean, there's some suggestion. We've just seen the first FBI agent um, connected, a a former supervisory agent uh, convicted in connection with January 6th. And I, I think that this is a very important question, and we should have had a holistic plan for national restoration. It wouldn't be easy. There would be a lot of people who wouldn't like it. What would you have this administration do if you were running it?
0: Um, there needs to be a constant argument about what the country is, what it believes, what it stands for, what its ideas and ideals are. They're all fundamentally wrapped around what you just alluded to a moment or so ago. Which freedom means freedom for everybody now, and at the end of the day, when you have a political party that has lied thirty five thousand times through Trump as a specific place, it raises the question that John Kennedy, you know, posed in that last speech, which is, right, what is if there is no great national purpose attached, right, to an institution. What is the purpose of the institution in a, in a free society? And, and so talking to the American people about what we have in common, our bonds, uniting the country, um, is is something that we need a leader um, to come forward who has capabilities beyond the leadership that we that we presently that we presently see. We are in a stalemate. Um, we're one election away from complete societal disaster if the autocratic faction gets in. And anybody who believes that Donald Trump cannot win the rematch uh, against Joe Biden does not understand American politics. Does not understand this country. Does not understand the electoral map does not understand the electoral college and has a real lack of imagination of the contempt right that the american people feel for their government because what trump is at the end of the day right he's a philosopher of excuse me for saying this but i'm gonna i'm gonna say it in new jersey he's a he's a he's a philosopher of fuck you is right and that's a very low bar his voters are just looking for someone to say fuck you but all the people at the top who they blame for the falling apart of their middle-class lives, the opioid tragedies, the notion there's one set of rules for everyone up there and one set for everyone down here. And so that working-class vote has a very low bar. They don't expect Trump to fix anything. They don't expect Trump to make anything better because they have so thoroughly lost their faith and their belief. They just want them to deliver the fuck yet. So the only thing you can do to deal with that is to articulate better, better, a vision for better. So what this country badly, badly needs is a Bobby Kennedy. It it needs a, not not the Bobby Kennedy Jr. <laughs> yeah, just the real thing, right? It, it badly, badly, badly needs a John Kennedy. It 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 needs a Jimmy Carter in the in the context of of 1976, and and so the proposition of the Biden presidency, um, and I think he's been a, an effective president. Um, was a restoration of normalcy, and and we're not there. Um, you know, we look at the debt ceiling. They these guys want praise for this. This was a completely manufactured crisis. If you if you bring the bomb down to the right to the to the town square and defuse it, you know, you're not getting the key to the city. You're getting a jail cell. And and so I don't know. I, I am very, very, very worried about how lax days ago the Democratic Party as an institution seems to me to be about this election. Um the fact about Biden's political weakness is evidence that very soon. Uh, marion williams and robert kennedy together are going to be north of about 35 percent of the primary vote that means the white house is going to have to turn and face and deal with that and i think there are miles and miles and miles to go in this primary season and everything that everyone in washington is telling us with certitude will happen for sure i don't think is actually going to happen so i i think we'll see it all play out in the next in the next couple of months but we have a overwhelmingly, the country does not want this. They do not want the Trump-Biden rematch, like 80% of the country. We say we don't agree on anything. We do agree on things. We don't want that. So the country is saying we want a round hole, right? And the politicians are banging a a square peg over it. And and we'll see what the American people do with that. But, But traditionally, we're a very defiant people. Right? We don't like being told to do things we don't want to do.
1: So there is so much truth in so much of what you've said here. There, there's just something I know we don't have a lot of time. There's something that I think is so important that I just want to pull this thread a little bit. Um, I agree with you, by the way, that we need someone who can give a profound con- counter message to the one that Trump presents. And we do not have that person in our discourse right now. And it's something that we desperately need we need um in in many ways a hero someone that we can look up to not just an order because barack obama was just such a profoundly good order i loved listening to him give a speech but what struck me the most was the content and those moments where there would be a unique insight that you can take away with you right and carry around with you something that's better than looking at an opioid crisis that's overwhelming and just giving up and only want to you know, flip flip the bird at the man. Um, Something that I struggle with a lot because I live in Alabama is convincing people who live in the Beltway or or who live on the East Coast that the whole rest of the world does not look like their world. I grew up in Los Angeles, spent a lot of time in New York growing up and came to Alabama as an adult, sort of as an outsider. And for a couple of years, I just sat around and went, hmm, this is this is really different. And I think it's important for people to understand how very different the experience is in parts of the country. That is what makes it all too possible to reelect a Donald Trump to the White House or to put another completely unsuitable leader there. That combined, as you say, with electoral maps and the way the electoral college works, those, those work to really tightly focus us on that risk This is something that Americans need to know more about and that they should hear about every day. Democrats, I will lodge this criticism of my party. We are not always great with delivering a tight message. We deal in big concepts that require communication and thought and back and forth. We are a big tent. We tolerate a lot of different views. We don't deliver good bumper stickers. And I think that that is a regrettable failure in the political era we live in. I would much prefer, you know, the discourse of a John F. Kennedy about Robert Frost at Amherst. But frankly, what we need in this time and place are some good bumper stickers that help people remember why it's so critical that we fight against any sort of fascism in the White House, in state houses, and in other elected offices.
0: Miss Kimmel. Hi, Lisa.
2: Hello. Thank you, Stephen Joyce. Joyce. Um, great discussion. There are so many questions that I am sifting through. Joyce, first question for you. Um, how do you judge the current conservative majority on the Supreme Court? And do you believe that they are part of the threat of fascism in the country?
1: Well, let me answer that by saying, you know, there are two things to be concerned about. One is whether or not there is actual issues. Could there be actual corruption on the court? Let's just set that aside for the moment. The second question is, what's the appearance like, right? As as lawyers, the ethical issues that we deal with when we think about conflict of interest is, is there an actual conflict or is there an appearance of a conflict? And the problem that this Supreme Court has, even if its heart is pure and if people are doing what they believe to be the legally appropriate thing, is the appearance of impropriety. This is a court that has been willing to you know, chew up and spit out precedent after promising that they would honor it during confirmation hearings. This notion that you can walk away from 50 years of precedent just because it doesn't suit you is wrongheaded. It is not how our legal system works. And when you have rights and privileges that people have come to rely on and then you strip them away or when you're willing, for instance, to just completely damage existing institutions that have lived through precedent, like the administrative state, that's troubling. Are the decisions right? Are the decisions wrong? You know, that's a separate question. But what concerns me is that in a moment where the court has done a lot to damage people's confidence in it, it has not done anything to reignite that confidence. There have been a lot of missteps. Justice Roberts was recently asked, what's the most difficult decision you ever made? And he said it was the decision to put a fence around the Supreme Court. And look, I understand that. I'm an appellate lawyer by trade. I love the court. I love the institution. It's a terrible thing to see it walled off from the American people. I'm sure that was tough on him. I think that there are substantive decisions that the Roberts courts have made that are deeply troubling, and this court has failed to reassure the American people that it believes in precedent, that it's acting based on the rule of law and not on a change of personalities on the court, and that we should have continuing confidence in them. You know, in the 60s, and the 70s, Americans went to court to have rights expanded, to have civil rights enforced. No longer do you go to the courts with confidence that the courts are where rights will be enforced, and that is a difficult moment in American society.
2: Thank you. And Steve, you led the nomination process for Chief Justice Roberts. Do you have any thoughts to share um, based on your experience working with him and where he is at today and and what he has said in terms of what I've only
0: talked to the chief justice once um, on the 10th anniversary of his ascension to his office, um, but uh, he's an institutionalist. And, and I think that Joyce's point, um, I would imagine that was very difficult for him just knowing how he sees the court. But again, I think I'm a little bit darker than Joyce's in my analysis of this, it's the court's a broken institution at a at a minimum level. Um, it, it's edging towards an illegitimacy in the eyes of the American people that's dangerous um, in the context of the maintenance of, of democracy. that you know democracy is sustained not by the iron fist, but by by faith and belief, in in the institutions and i i think that um the clarence thomas uh situation is a disaster uh those are acts of corruption um i don't need to know any more in my view to say they're acts of of corruption uh fairly uh outrageous conduct um the comportment of some of these justices is similarly outrageous and we're going to need to deal with some issues um, in the country. When we passed the Constitution in the 1780s, you know, the average life expectancy was lucky to make it to 50. We're going to have people living to 125, 135 years old who are getting on the court when they're in their 50s. You know, do, do we want the next Clarence Thomas to spend 90 years on the Supreme Court? And I think the answer is no. There needs to be term limits on the court. Um, There may need to be consideration given to an expansion of the court. But both parties have played a role through the confirmation processes of of completely politicizing and breaking baking the trust. And and we have to understand is that, you know, if McDonald's and, and Burger King attacked each other like Republicans and Democrats do, what would the result be? Right. There'd be a lot less hamburgers eaten in America. Right. And that's and that's the result you're getting, um, you know, from from politics is a total turn off from it.
2: So there are a lot of questions about Trump. I'm just going to ask you one, Joyce. Um, do you actually believe that Trump is going to serve time in prison for his crimes? This is such a good question. None
1: of you will like the answer that I'm about to give you, Um Let me start by talking about two other cases involving the Espionage Act and classified documents. Both involve former CIA directors, General Petraeus and John Deutsch. Both of them were permitted to plead guilty to a misdemeanor for conduct that roughly is the same as Trump's. I say roughly because in the Petraeus case, there was very clear dissemination to his biographer, um, but but we're still in the same ballpark. Misdemeanor guilty, please, no time served. And the reason in both of those cases that DOJ offered that deal was twofold. One was how do you protect the secrets that are inside of these guys' heads in the general prison population? That can be tough to do, right? And then the second question was, what secrets might spill if, if you go to a trial situation? These two very powerful men are fighting for their lives at trial. What won't they do at trial to protect themselves? Um, and so it's, it's this first question here and this notion of how do you keep the nation safe when you have someone like the former director of the CIA in prison that really is very difficult with Donald Trump? What do you do? Is, is his detail in prison with him? Um, I have had conversations with folks who served on his detail, at least for an arrest process, and we've now seen that happen in New York. The feeling was that, yes, at least the lead agent on his detail goes in and stays with him. Well, what do you do if you're the warden at, you know, let's just um, say that he goes to Talladega, the federal prison in my district. It's a minimum security prison. Are you going to have Secret Service agents carrying weapons, which they must do in your general prison population? And what kind of risk does that create? I mean, there are all of these questions that we have never had to deal with before that are very perplexing. And so you will forgive prosecutors if they would wish that these sorts of questions would just go away. But the reality is, I don't think that the American public will be satisfied with a misdemeanor plea, and no jail time here. And I personally think that this former president's conduct exceeds what we've seen in cases where that's the precedent. Trump's lawyers are going to go in, and if at some point he's willing to accept a plea deal, which is really tough to imagine right now, you know, Donald Trump stands up in a courtroom and says, Your Honor, I'm pleading guilty because I am guilty and for no other reason. I just can't envision that. But if we get to that moment They will go in and they will say to DOJ, your precedent in the Petraeus case and others is that we get a misdemeanor deal and no jail time. And if you treat like defendants like, that's one outcome. I I think it can be distinguished though. I think Donald Trump has done far worse damage to the nation. I think this long-term pattern of obstruction is outrageous. I'd be willing to bet prosecutors have evidence we don't yet know anything about. They've now talked to All 20 Secret Service agents on the Trump detail, one assumes that they are looking for some evidence that these documents were disseminated, um, which would really ratchet this entire thing up, sort of to tag off of Steve's earlier point about why do you invest $2 billion in an untried businessman? Um, And so there may be the realistic question of how do you incarcerate a former president? Is that, you know, something that often happens is home confinement, and especially for someone with a shorter s- sentence. They can be confined to their home. They can be forced to wear monitoring equipment so they can't leave. They get to go to work. They get to go to church. That's that's about it. Um, it's tough, I think, this notion that Donald Trump locked up at Mar-a-Lago would be due punishment, but at the same time, a guilty verdict— against Donald Trump will send a very strong message. I think one of the big issues here, and I'm gonna duck the question just a tiny bit because you know my thoughts, tough to put Trump in jail. I hope he will serve at least a minimal custodial sentence. But this mere fact of conviction and the opportunity that this special counsel will have to educate the American public about the case, I think we can't underestimate how valuable that is. You know, During Watergate, the special prosecutor went to the country and he talked about the case and he explained why it was a righteous case. We need to see something like that happening here. This just can't be the typical DOJ. We filed this indictment and, you know, everything that we have to say is in the four corners of the indictment. And, you know, furthermore, say the prosecution not. This is not the moment for that. Prosecutors cannot take the stage and argue that the defendant is guilty outside of court. That just is too prejudicial it would violate a defendant's rights. What they can do is they can explain their case so that Americans can understand it and talk about it. And hopefully at the end of the day, the overwhelming majority of us will embrace it and will understand that it's the right thing to do.
2: Thank you. There are a lot of questions around what is it that people can do to address so many of the issues that the countries are facing. I'm going to ask you about one, and I'll ask both of you to comment on it, the issue of book banning. What can the people listening here tonight do to address this problem within their local communities or at a state level?
0: Well look i i think you know i've i've talked about this which is if whatever community you're in let's say you're living in johnson kansas and you have a crazed school board that wants to ban all the books in in the johnson kansas school district this isn't a national emergency um it's certainly an emergency in that township in kansas um and and what people should do is vote those school board members out of office Uh, as quickly, as quickly as possible. Um, You know, I I need to be a better citizen on this. You know, I'm someone whose engagement is in national politics. Um, You know, there's, you know, I have frequently not voted in local elections in, you know, places that I was living in and traveling 300,000 miles a year out of, right? You know, disconnected from the local community. Uh, The truth of the matter is, in you know, Park City, Utah, you could hold a gun to my head. I couldn't tell you who my state senator is, right? Who my state rep is? Um, I, you know, who's on the county council? I, I have no, I have no idea. There's no, there's no excuse for that. Um, you know, there's a, there's truth of the matter is, is that you know, when you have a political party filled with crazy people, right? You're a normal person working hard. You got the kids. You're raising the chickens. You're working hard. You're doing whatever. You don't want to go right and fight at the end of the day for three hours a day seven days a week with a bunch of crazy people in the local politics club right so you know it's but at the end of the day right you know government of the people by the people for the people fundamentally means right government of the people by the people for the people there will there will always be someone who is willing to be in charge right to put the time in right looks left looks right like hey you know, I guess I'll be the local furor of the of the school board and run and run amok. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you you have to you have to be able to put your foot down. You got to be involved, um, and you got to care. And and that's what my that's what my advice is. But but understand, book banning, uh, restrictions on what you can think your conscience what well, you can say the chill in the air on all of these issues it's terrible right and it's and it's delusional and and we are not weaker because we understand our history and we understand the catastrophe that has existed over america's history in the disconnect between our ideals and our reality right there's there've been catastrophic disconnection between those things in terms of how Black people were treated, how American Indians were treated, how women were treated, how Asian Americans were treated, and and facing that and understanding that um, is what helps guarantee freedom for everybody for the next 200 years.
2: Joyce?
1: So um, I just want to adopt everything that Steve said just now and say I feel like I just um, was able to take a master class, right, in participatory democracy. We all get this notion that the most important politics are our local politics, that you personally are far more affected by who your mayor is, who's on your school board, um, who the dog catcher is. Then who's in the White House? I I think that that's very true. I bumped into my former senator, Doug Jones, today, and the conversation that we had was not about national politics. It was not even about Donald Trump. It was about local political issues, because those are the issues that are the most transformative in our own um, daily lives. And the um, president whose administration I served in as a political appointee, Barack Obama, I, I always remember him saying, don't boo, vote. If you've got a complaint about what's going on, then it's incumbent upon you to educate yourself, to get out and vote, maybe to run yourself, um, you know, to decide that there's an office that you're willing to take on. There's a little caveat, though, that I think that we have to administer in this day and age, and particularly in light of the fact that the Supreme Court is about to rule in in yet another voting rights case, this one coming out of Alabama, And that is the fact that it's no longer just enough to vote. You actually have to be willing to work for the right to vote because the right to vote is endangered everywhere. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or if you're a Republican. We now live in a country where districts can be gerrymandered to suit the party that's in power, where voting rights can increasingly be suppressed by making it difficult for you to register to vote and to have your vote counted. And this, it seems to me, is an issue that should transcend politics. And it's something that we should all be able to agree on, right? Setting aside for the minute how you're going to vote, I think every one of us is entitled to vote and to have that count. That's a foundational American notion. It's something that we should come around to the extent that you believe what Steve says and I do, that we need a visionary leader who can engage us with a strong message about why America matters. It seems that this is the crux of it. We need people who can work across party lines and say, here's something we can all agree on. Let's create an America where everybody has a say-so in what our future looks like.
2: Thank you. We are out of time. Um, There are a number of people who asked specifically how uh, they could find each of you on Substack. So for Joyce, it's joycevance.substack.com. And for Steve, it's steveschmidt.substack.com or just Google, Google Joyce Vance Sewell Discourse. You'll find it. Same thing for Steve, Steve Schmidt, The Warning. Um, and now, Steve, I will turn things over to you to wrap.
0: Well, Joyce, thank you so much uh, for a great conversation. And thank you, everybody, for taking time out of your schedule to engage on um, think these conversations are really important um, to understand what's happening, what's going on. Uh, we'll continue to try to deliver that on this platform at this forum. And I just wanna say again, Joyce, thank you so much. Uh, everybody can find you again at Civil Discourse and on MSNBC where you will be doing as always the excellent job that you do explaining all of this. Uh, to everyday people who are confused, uh, sometimes frightened, uh, shocked, looking at what they see as decay. Um, But as you pointed out, um, the system is being tested. Um, Testing requires strain. So we're seeing our systems be strained. But at the end of the day, um, even the most pessimistic amongst us cannot disagree with the fact that they are holding in this hour um, and accountability is coming. And so thank you very much for your time.
2: And I just say one last thing, just because people are asking. Um, there is an audio recording of this session. Um, both Steve and Joyce will send it out to uh civil discourse audience as well as the warning And um, we look forward to you and encourage you to also share it with people within your networks, given the fact that so many important topics were covered tonight.
0: Good night. Thank you.
2: Good night, night, y'all. Thanks, Steve.